Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, man, Rob Richardson's here. We're going to talk to him in just a few minutes. But first, buddy, are you still in quarantine? Um, I think when this show comes out, I will be set free. Oh. Yeah, yeah, because this is coming out in July, so I should be loose by then. But you, you, did, you weren't able to see your kids on Father's Day, right? No, they're not supposed to come over. They, uh, admittedly, they went, they got to the corner of the yard and waved at me. So yeah. we're just trying to follow procedure. I mean, look, the, the two week quarantine is an outdated concept. I caught caught in the original quarantine. Like I got back from New York in March of 2020 right. as quarantine started when we had no vaccines and no tests and no nothing. And two weeks quarantine made a lot of sense. Right. We now know that COVID 19 can have a non-symptomatic yet infectious period, but it's three to five days after exposure. Right. So what made sense was for me to show up the border with a test in hand that was, you know, within 24, 48 hours, which I had. It wasn't allowed to, you know, it would have been in trouble if I didn't do that. They'd find me. Yeah. And then send me home with another test that like three or five days later, I would do that one. And if I was clear on that, clearly I'm fine. They just didn't change the procedure because every time you change procedure, people get confused and freaked right, out. Right. So instead, I walked across the border with, and they handed me two tests, one to be done on day one and one to be done on day eight. Now, I think the day one one is especially stupid since it was like 12 hours after I just had a test. Right. But okay, procedure. And then a day eight test. But both of them had to be done on camera at home. So there was a nurse watching me as I inserted this thing into my nose and stirred around for a while <laughs> and then did the other nostril and then had to put it in a vial and da 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 But you know, I have this crazy recording rig here. So I used the crash zoom to get really, really, really close to my nose. <laughs> yeah. The nurse said that was unnecessary. I didn't do that. <laughs> but at least I amused myself and she probably had a story to tell because I can't imagine it's any fun to be sitting on camera watching one person after another do this stupid test over and over and over again. But you know, so I don't know, for all of the Zoom calls where we're looking up each other's noses, um, having a thing where it's useful, that might be kind of interesting. Yeah, no question. Pete's dying. All right, well. Anyway, that's what I got. That's cool. Uh, let's get started with the little thing we call Better Know Framework. Roll the music. Awesome. <laughs> All right, man, what do you got? Well, uh, somebody in the Salliance Slack channel posted this. Mm -hmm. Of course, this is episode 1746, so you should go to 1746.pwop.me. And this is a blog post called The History of Search Engines. Opening paragraph, today, Google and other search engines are smarter than ever. They use machine learning to help process and rank information and can understand natural human speech. But the internet wasn't always so easy to navigate. There was a time when you had to know the exact wording of a website's title to find it. Search results were riddled with spam. Getting new content indexed by the search engines could take weeks to complete. Search engines have certainly changed. In this timeline, learn about the history and evolution of search engines from 1990 to the present day. And as you scroll down, wow. you're seeing in 1990, Archie Query Form, the first search engine. Nice. The well, that predates web altogether. That's totally. literally for searching for files. Yeah, right? it searched FTP sites to create index, uh, an index of downloadable files. And it says due to limited space, the only, only the listings were available and not for the contents 
of each site. And then it goes on and on and on and on and on all the way down to present day. It's uh, 2017. Wow. It's really, really fun reading. Interesting stuff. That's cool. Yeah. Not exactly a framework, but it's cool. Not exactly at all a framework, but it's good stuff to know, especially if you want to be as popular as Richard and I are at cocktail parties. <laughs> I don't know how popular we are, but okay. <laughs> you know, all those cocktail parties. I was parties. going on about DisplayPort and HDMI earlier today, and that was really popular. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all those cocktail parties that we had in the last year and a half, Richard. You know, that's what I'm talking about. <clears throat> well, I've had plenty of cocktail parties by myself. By myself. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, that's what I got today. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, love man? It. Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 1742, the one we did with Paula uh, talking about debugging ransomware. So, you know, I've had Paula on uh, Run As Radio a bunch of times. She's, she's a pen tester, one of the best I've ever seen. Right. And, you know, lots of conversations on the IT side. It was nice to have her on .NET Rocks and talk a little bit about, more ran, about ransomware, which seems to be at epidemic proportions right now. Oh, yeah. It's getting crazy. Um, and, and from the dev side of the story, too. And this particular comment comes from Rob Garner, who said, hey, thanks so much for the show. The best part was when you identified your own coding frustrations. Because mm -hmm. we were talking about, yeah. you know, how hard it was to do security stuff right. Right. And Rob says, uh, I've been working with Azure Active Directory. You mentioned the problems you're having with the examples and documentation out there. And most especially that you often have to figure it out yourself because the examples are so far out of date hmm. that they don't mean anything. And now hearing you say it makes me feel a little less insane. Yeah. That's the frustrating part, right? It's like you go and you get into the docs and start walking through some example of using, you know, a B2C in Azure, Azure AD, and none of the dialogues are the same. Mm. None of the code works the same mm. way because they've changed it. It changes so often yeah. and so quickly. Frustrating. That I, I don't know how you possibly keep docs up to date. Well, the f right? you could but start uh, by putting a date right at the top of when it was published. Yeah. And, you know, if and, you're smart, and, you can view the source and look at the date, but, you know, most people don't do that. Yeah, it's it's frustrating. But you also understand why folks end up with Okta and OAuth and things like that. Right. Uh, because even though it's included with your Azure account, it's really tricky to make that stuff work well. Yeah. So, Rob, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we also publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, I'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And you should definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet, but no links because we won't click on them. Because <laughs> yeah. that's how ransomware works, kids. That's See, how that's it works. the joke. Don't. Hey, Sparky, Don't come here. It's about the link. Okay. <laughs> um, speaking of that, I, I don't have anything to share yet, but I just want to put this out there. Our good friend, mm -hmm. Patrick Hines. You know Patrick. Oh, yes. Yes. From uh, episode one of .NET Rocks. Yes. Met up with him in Orlando at Dev Intersection, and we both agreed to move forward to doing a podcast together on security that oh, isn't just for developers. In fact, I would say it's not going to be as technical as we talk about security on .NET Rocks, but it's going to be for, for business decision makers. 
And we're going to deep dive into, you know, some of these things and how to protect yourself. We're going to talk to hackers. We're going to talk to his security guys. Like, it's going to be an eye-opener. And uh, that, which is good because, you know, I need the fear of God in me to make sure that everything in my world is secure. <laughs> and Well, uh, yeah. And, it, and it's such a terrible time in security. You know, he's also doing a podcast with Cyprian called yes. Entangled Things. And it's about quantum computing. And I did. I was a guest on one of their shows. I made it a point not to listen to that because I like my brain just the way it is. <laughs> Cyprian is serious businessman. Yeah, he, he is a thinker. No two ways about it. Yeah. But I rolled out a sort of dissertation around the how uh, history often rhymes, and that the effort to develop the modern microcomputer uh, parallels the de- effort to develop quantum computers very closely. You know, the computers were much more difficult to build before the integrated circuit came along. Mm. And so I feel the same way it took time to figure out to make how to make the right bit for classical computers. They were trying to figure out how to make the right qubit for quantum computers. Yep. You lost me already. All right. Well, with that, uh, Richard, <laughs> tell us <laughs> tell us who's talking to us today. I've already done that bit. Hey, that's why I'm here. <laughs> did you see what I did? I did a quantum thing. I went back in time. <laughs> Did you see well, that? Well, I got your superposition right here. <laughs> <laughs> see what I did there? Yeah, you collapsed the wave function. I did. I don't even know what that means, but it's funny. <laughs> uh, let's bring up Rob Richardson. Rob is a Microsoft MVP, a friend of Redgate, high-quality software developer, and international conference speaker. He's the owner and principal developer at Richardson & Sons, LLC a boutique software development firm offering Docker, Kubernetes, ASP.NET, Node, and Git consulting and training. He leads the Southeast Valley.net user group in Chandler, Arizona, and is a core organizer of AZ Give Camp. One of his biggest accomplishments is he received a coveted .NET Rocks mug for his comment on show 960, low those many years ago. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment there, we read it on the show. We'll send you a copy of Music to Bed. Nobody says that. And definitely follow. And we don't send out .NET Rocks mugs anymore. And definitely, yeah, I know. But this is in his bio. Oh, funny. So, and definitely follow Rob on Twitter. He's at Rob underscore Rich. Or look for his contact online at RobRich.org. Rob Rich, welcome. Thanks. So glad to be here. It's good to see you. Last week in Orlando. Yeah, it was nice to get out again. <laughs> I was in the airport on my way out. I texted my family. I've seen more people in the last 15 minutes than I have in the last 15 months. Yeah, it really was that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, no, that's what this it was, is like. It was a strange experience. And what was so exciting about Dev Intersections is we did hybrid in a really elegant way. I've seen a lot of conferences where they do hybrid and they just kind of bisect the audience where there's an online conversation and there's an in-person conversation, but they're different. They just happen yeah. to be happening at the same time. Right. And what Dev Intersection did really well is bringing those two together. And the hard part there is conference Wi-Fi, <laughs> but that yes. wasn't a problem here at all. And so, I had as many no. online people in my sessions as I had in-person people and as many conversations and questions in person as online. It was perfect. It was well done. It was really well done. Yeah, we, we solved it the old-fashioned way with cables. Every We had a hard line into every room 
we made everyone's laptop work harder by also running Teams and so forth. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a whole conversation about how we could automate that. But you know, the one thing I really noticed that was super important, having remote speakers with some people also in attendance. A, I was impressed that folks came to see a session with the speaker being remote. But when we turned the camera on the audience so the speaker could see the room with people in it, it changed the top. Yep. Like, the effect on the speaker is palpable. I think we had a year of shouting into the void, staring at a camera. And when you can finally see a group of folks are listening to you, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, staring at the camera is interesting and all. And, you know, putting googly eyes on that camera helps there. But at the end of the (laughs) day, interacting with an audience is really fun. It's all the difference in the world, no question. And they really appreciate it too. Yeah, thanks so much for helping with the show there, Rob. I really appreciate your help. Yeah, definitely. It was really cool. I got to speak a bunch of times. I was the analog twin for a digital speaker. <laughs> that was really cool, yeah. too. It was fun. Yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was a crazy, crazy thing. I don't know if we'll do it exactly the same way. We're taking all the feedback in, but we'll see what happens in the fall. Next show is Vegas, December. Yeah. There you I go. Mean, you may have to do hybrid as well in Vegas, but we don't know yet, right? Well, we know how. I know how it improve it. Mm. We're just going to have to figure out what that looks like as we get closer. Very cool. And everything in Vegas should be sanitized and, you know, wrapped in plastic and, you know, all the things. Well, yeah, dipped in Purell. Yeah, it's all <laughs> pretty artificial. So, I don't know. We'll figure it out. Purell showers. Yeah. Ooh. With all the security stuff early in the show, I'm like, do I need to go reset my password? Are you about to tell me that you have my bank balance and uh, what my mother's maiden <laughs> name is? If that was I really had fun. it, I would I tell you? <laughs> Think about that. Don't worry. You'll see it on Have I Been Pwned no soon stress. enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, Rob, what's new in your world? A lot of stuff. It's really fun getting to um, get back to in-person conferences, doing a lot of uh, virtual conferences before that. It was really fun getting to be able to speak in lots of places that I wouldn't have been able to travel to. <laughs> mm. I was famous for saying, um, I've spoken in more countries this month than times I've left the house. Yeah. And so, I got to speak in Cairo and in um, Argentina and in Brazil and wow. in Australia <laughs> a bunch of times. And yesterday, I got to speak in uh, Western Africa. That was really fun. Um, wow, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Got to Moscow a couple of times over the course of the pandemic. It was fun. That's great. Yeah. And a lot fewer air miles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is, you know, I'm about to lose my frequent flyer status because I haven't been out of the house. Yeah. So, you have some modern thoughts on Node.js, I hear? Yes. What's really cool about Node is that we've kind of gone through this um, transition from um, common JS modules to more modern import and export syntax. And... The cool part about that is that it's a lot simpler, a lot easier to reason about, but it does create a whole lot of churn in the industry. CommonJS is typically a require type of syntax, and then you have a module.exports, where with import and export, you can just, you know, import things. Can you translate that for C-sharp developers? (laughs) Yeah, in (laughs) C-sharp, it's a using at the top, and we don't really export things, you know. Perhaps we do public um, or private or internal to start to explain similar things. Okay. But the cool part is that they work very differently under the hood. And the JavaScript community kind of focused in on this ES6 syntax, this ECMAScript 6, which became ECMAScript 2015. That's a whole nother thing. 
They got this import syntax kind of done before Node was really part of that conversation. So then hmm. it took a really long time to get that into the Node community. Meanwhile, Node had been using similar syntax inside of React and Angular and all of these tools that used transpilers. And well, now how do we get import and export into Node itself? We've got that now. Um, and so that makes it a, a really excellent experience. But there was a whole lot of churn to get there. We probably have to back up and talk about what is transpiling. In C Sharp, we can just push compile and it takes our um, C Sharp code and turns it into a DLL and we can ship that DLL. By comparison with JavaScript, we ship the JavaScript to the browser. Or in the case of Node, we run the JavaScript there in place. So if we want to do things like um, requiring other files, we need to teach JavaScript how to do that. It's not really used to doing that on its own. So we'll have a compiler like Babel um, or Webpack or both. That was the one I was thinking of Babel. It's like the sort of classical JavaScript transpiler. Right. Where it can go look at all of the files and translate them not into bytecode like a DLL, but rather into uh, similar JavaScript that includes all the things. So we'll use Babel to take ES6 and turn it into ES5. And then we'll take Webpack that will go uh, follow all of the imports and be able to create one bundle file that we can either download at one time or uh, run it inside of the node um, command line to be able to do similar things there. So what I remember from my JavaScript days, and you know, it wasn't that long ago, but when I was writing a lot of JavaScript, was that everything's global, right? If you just have a file in your, uh, let's say you're in, you know, you know, your web root called this.js, and you have another one called that.js, and you got methods in each of them, and you come to the other.js, and you can just call methods in any of those files because they're loaded up by the browser and they all exist in the same um, context, right? And, and you can have these global variables that you can access anywhere as long as they're outside of a method. So how does this imports thing, does it, is that what the problem that it's solving? Are we getting some scoping from this version of uh, ECMAScript? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's where modern JavaScript, even JavaScript in the browser, kind of looks more like Node than um, the JavaScript that you're used to. Because with each of these, we're solving that scoping problem, both with um, require, J require syntax and with um, ECMAScript 6 imports and exports. We have that mechanism where each file is its own scope. And so I can choose the pieces that I want to expose publicly mm. and I can choose which pieces I want to hide. And we had mechanisms for doing this in the past, immediately invoking function expressions or ifies that allowed us to kind of hide things. But the cool part here is that Webpack allows us to go traverse those and grab the pieces. Webpack's methodology hmm. of creating um, that dependency tree is now baked into JavaScript here with imports and exports. Hmm. So I can choose to pull in the pieces that I want and maybe not pull in the entire library. In C Sharp, we have similar concepts of uh, tree shaking. And that's really popular in JavaScript to say, you know, I need a portion of this library, but I don't need all of the library. So I'm just going to import the things that I need. 
during that transpilation process, we then say, hey, this other code isn't needed at all. Let's just not include it. So you're making everything smaller, which is always a battle on the web anyway. Right. But I And I always looked at Babel as I want to write an ECMAScript 2015, but not all browsers support it. So it's transpiling backward for me. Is that still necessary in 2021? It is less necessary. There are ECMAScript um, proposals that happen all of the time. And so there's right. levels from zero to four. Zero being, um, hey, I had a really cool idea yesterday. All the way to four being, it's already in some browsers. I think it's ready to go. Let's mm. push it out in the next ECMAScript standard that comes out next year. Because they are doing now an annual cadence, right? Like there's, un, there's an ECMAScript specification for every year. And it's just, a, it's there's, but they're incremental ads. Like they're, they're very right. much doing the modern thing. Yeah. So thus ECMAScript 6 became 2015. And then we had 2016, right. 2017. And all the way through 2021, as each yeah. of these standards come out, anything that was at uh, proposal level four is included in the next version of ECMAScript. But if right. I want to use that it, feature before it's out, that's when Babel can be really helpful. And so I pull hmm. in, um, I use the syntax that I want to use, and I pull in a Babel plugin that says, hey, I know how to make that older syntax. In the old days, we would use that for let and const to move it into var. Nowadays, we don't need that. We can push let and const into the browser. But uh, optional type chaining or null coalescing operators. Those are things that came to TypeScript and to Babel before they came to browsers. And TypeScript is a transpiler too. How does that fit into the modern architecture? What's really cool is for the most part, as we're building React and Vue and Angular apps, we're not shipping the code that we write into the browser. We're running them through this compilation process, this transpilation process. Well, if we're going to transpile it anyway, we may as well up-level a little bit and transpile it from TypeScript into modern JavaScript. People love TypeScript. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We didn't used to, but now we do a lot. It's really cool. It adds that additional level of intent to our code where we can say, you know, I really expect this object to look like this, or I'm going to return you an object that definitely looks like this. Yeah, because classic JavaScript would say, great, what's an object? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And TypeScript can say, no, the object has these properties and they're of these types. (laughs) Yeah, good old Anders. And you're violating it over here. You said it would have these types, but what you're doing over here in this code doesn't comply with that, Mm. right? A little concept of static typing, but at compiler time, essentially. Right. And the cool part about TypeScript is that it is only design time. Once you compile it, it becomes just regular JavaScript and JavaScript is what runs in the browser. So all of the type definitions just melt away and your bundle size isn't bigger because you annotated it with the types. It's just clearer for your IDE and it's clearer for the next developer, which is usually me shortly after I forgot how the code worked. (laughs) (laughs) What was I thinking? Uh, That's how I stared at all the code I wrote like a day ago. It's like, what idiot wrote this? Oh, wait, it's me. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The one that really catches me is when I'm really stuck on something and I go to a search engine, I go try and find the answer and I find the blog post written by me. Yeah. I'm like, oh, wow, (laughs) I've forgotten it again. Yeah. That's why I wrote this down. So I could remind myself. Yeah. Right. 
So we have imports and exports that definitely solves that scoping problem, but we also have async and await that is new in Node. And I would say kind not super new, but it's new-ish. And that paradigm has really modernized JavaScript coding as well. It's amazing how much async and await has propagated in other languages. I mean, it's astonishing to think about it from a browser context, but even C++ has implemented it. Like you, you get how good an idea Anders had there with async and await that other, you know, this is the Robert Frost line, right? Immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. <laughs> mature, pro, mature language designers, when they see a good idea, it's like, oh, we're doing that. Right. And, and, and async and await is just a good idea. Yeah. What's really cool in C Sharp is async and await is implemented over the top of the task parallel library. And I dug right. deep into the task parallel library back in the day. And mm-hmm. then once async and await came out, it was like, oh, yeah, that's just so simple. Yep. It builds up a state machine, a re-entrant state machine, where next time you call into it, it knows what step it's on and can pick up with the next step. Hmm. All of that is behind the scenes and it's a compiler trick. And in JavaScript, it is that way too. We use promises and generators to create a state machine at compile time. And that state machine is re-entrant, just like it is with the task parallel library. And the cool part there is because it's built on promises, we can interop between promises and async and await code in JavaScript really easily. And so if I want to run a lot of things in parallel, then I can launch a bunch of tasks, but not await them. And then I can choose to promise.all and await that new promise. And now I'm doing all of those things in parallel. Wow. I really like the dot then fluent syntax of promises. Um, yeah, I, I do. And, you know, that it's a delight to use JavaScript when you have that kind of stuff in and it, and you get it. Yeah. You know, I didn't get it at first, but it's, it's really cool. And that's what's so cool about really modern JavaScript with async and await because you'd get those dot thens and you can start to kind of see it, but there's some awkward rules there with dot then. Like the first one really does need to return a promise, but the rest of them don't. And so, <laughs> we have these dot thenathons, <laughs> and now you can just simplify it out just by saying await. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And it, yeah, you know, it's funny is I'm thinking it's like this is not your father's JavaScript. No, like, it changes. The, the, we're talking about it like a real programming language. How did that happen? Yeah, it's weird. It's like Node created a mechanism where we could run JavaScript outside of the browser, and right. that kind of took off. But we also created this mechanism where we were starting to build thick clients in the browser. Um, jQuery and AngularJS back in the day kind of crafted this Backbone, methodology. Like and now we're building things, yeah. thick clients in the browser every day. And mm-hmm. it's like, wait a minute, a thick client? That's a that's an old school term. <laughs> What's a thick <laughs> but client? Even, even, even with Electron is another way of I'm building a, a – of a thick client or a smart client that I want to run in lots of different places. Like you just, you just sort of open the door to where do you want to run your code that you like writing in JavaScript? Cause we've got a much nicer JavaScript yeah. today. Right. Hey guys, can you hold that thought for just a minute while we take a moment for this very important message? How do you know that your app will be supportable in production unless you're using logs in dev and QA? Try Seek for centralized logging you can host yourself, anywhere, including on your development machine. Go to datalust.co slash seek 
That's datalust.co slash seq to learn more. And we're back. This is Carl Franklin. That's my friend Richard Campbell. Howdy. And we're talking to Rob Richardson about JavaScript and Node.js and all those good things that we haven't talked about on this show for a while. What? I thought I this was really .NET Rocks. Okay. TypeScript. Yeah. Okay. There you go. It's not .NET. It's a little more .NET-y. A little more .NET-y. I don't know that we've talked a whole lot about the Node side of things. You know, I, I really appreciated coming out of the IIS land, which I always equated as this, you got the Swiss Army knife and every blade is out. Right, which remember when you when you were a kid and you got your first Swiss Army knife, you took them all out because you just had to see, and then you figured out that's a really stupid thing to do. Right. <laughs> like it really hard to put back. <laughs> and the fact that ISS IIS had all this attack surface, that like all of these things were on by default and often were exploited, whether you're using them or not. Then along comes Node says, uh, "No, you tell me everything you want to turn on one piece at a time. You want a listener? Okay, you put you implement that, you know, and so forth and so on." Has that evolved? Because it seemed to me it was almost like too far the other way. Well, it's kind of interesting because we have then frameworks that build on top of that, where right. um, Node just exposes a raw socket and a raw file system experience. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, then, for example, the socket, we put in Express. And Express is this MVC framework that allows us to match routes with uh, functions and allows us to parse headers and body content using various mechanisms. So here's a JSON parser and here's a form parser and allows us to get that kind of higher level experience. There's lots of clones of Express and lots of things that build on top of Express. And the, the hard part is Express is kind of stalled as a library, but it's still kind mm. of the de facto standard. And so whether we're doing more of an MVC style or more of a Sinatra style, they're pretty much all based on Express, and that's really cool. I tend to fall back to exactly Express and get that high, higher level experience. But that's the methodology of Node, is when you need that thing, you pull in a library to accomplish it. And that's where right. NPM is a really elegant ecosystem of plugins, not that unlike NuGet, that includes all kinds of cool libraries, and the majority of them happen to be open source. Right. It's, and so part of your task going down this path of building a new application with Node is sort of sorting out what's already been built for me. What what pieces of the framework can I grab and use? Mm, exactly. And which ones are no longer maintained and which ones yeah. have dependencies that aren't secure and which one is cool today, <laughs> but not yeah. yesterday and not tomorrow. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Well, which one can I get help with? Because I'm gonna, I figure I, I'm gonna get to about eighty percent, and then I'm gonna need some real help. And is there anybody out there? Right. You know, I, I think it's really interesting these days how much time I spend looking at a library on GitHub and going, "How healthy is this? <laughs> Who are the contributors? You know, who's the lead on it? How long does a PR take? Um, how responsible are the issues? Like these, and you know, that, that enterprise architect hat always drops on my head, and it's like, could I live with this? in terms of my, you know, my team taking dependencies on it. And the hard part there is it's like, well, if I can't live with it, now what? Do mm, I find yeah. a new library? Do I build it myself? Am I reinventing the wheel because these wheels are stale or rusty? That's a hard choice well, to make. Not that, yeah, it is tough. And not that long ago, we did a show with Rocky Lockett talking about exactly that sort of enterprise view of open source where, you know, just because the code's out in the open 
doesn't mean you're safe. Like, are you mm-hmm. really prepared to take over that library and maintain it yourself? Is that a good idea? And I, I think the old case is almost always no. Mm. Yeah. But I think both from the NuGet view and the NPN view, view just because it's in the catalog doesn't mean you should use it. Like, you need to do some homework first before you commit to, to pulling it. Yeah. Looking at GitHub issues and stars and pull requests, but also looking at dependencies. Because if there's yeah. a lot of other projects that depend on this library, then they're probably in a similar boat if things go bad. So, yeah, that's kind of a nice boat to be in, all else being equal. Yeah, isn't it interesting? Like, we, we want to see that other people are using this so that they're going to be stressed, too, if the, the principal contributor is, you know, taking a vacation or yeah. – you know, falls ill or any of those sorts of things. Like I've seen projects where we lose that principal contributor and it's genuinely in trouble. Like who's going to, there's a bunch of people standing around that looking, going, you going to do it? Are you going to do it? Like who's taking this on? Mm. And then the sea of enterprise developers that are like, um, this bug has been unsolved for months. Why I need to get my job done tomorrow. How are you going to help me solve my, and open source doesn't work that way. Right. Yeah, yeah, and and often those things like you're you're a volunteer. You want to work on what's fun and relevant for you, not necessarily what's n- important to someone else. Right. We end up in we end up into this trap, and uh, certainly there's a frustration. I just had this conversation, so independent of doing the show, around the the disproportionate y- use certain developers have of open source and sort of the entitlement to it versus actually making contributions to it. And you can see that toxic thread on many GitHub issues where the enterprise yeah. developers just kind of gang up on the contributor and uh, demoralize them into doing less. Yeah. And I'm like, no, let's encourage the developer. And, you know, money often isn't a motivator there, mm-hmm. but let's encourage yeah. the developer to be awesome here or let's contribute and help. And uh, no, don't just stab the open source developer and hope that he's going to... Um, start moving again or she's going to start contributing just because you've discouraged them enough. That's not yeah, the way to get it done. Yeah, yeah. You know, after all the insults you've leveled on me, clearly I'm motivated to fix your problem. <laughs> yeah. Like that's a, yeah. People just not cluing into, you know, you're trying to treat them like a, it's a retail product that you didn't have to pay for. And it's not the case. Uh, back to nodes uh, request pipeline. What's really cool mm-hmm. about that is that you can just hook up functions to various things. And in the old days, we used callbacks. Now we can use promises or async functions. And so I can subscribe to various pieces and accomplish various tasks, which is really cool. Express kind of levels that up to give us a framework of routers and things. And we saw that in ASP.NET MVC as it moved to .NET Core, where we kind of saw more of an exposed pipeline. Configure and configure services looks a whole lot like rigging up Express. Hmm. That's interesting. So just sort of, you're just triggering on events, essentially. When I see something that looks like this, run this piece of code. Yeah. Create a middleware pipeline where a request flows through it. There might be a condition at the beginning to say, should I run this function or not? But uh, then run through each of the functions doing those tasks, which is exactly what ASP.NET does. What's really interesting in the ASP.NET world is we now have with .NET 6, these really lightweight functions that just rig up to URLs, and that almost exactly looks like Node. So, as much as Node has grabbed request response from .NET, .NET's also starting to emulate 
the pipeline model of Node. Exactly. I see a lot of crossover between these ecosystems. Async and Await went from C Sharp to Node and NPM with a really rich ecosystem of packages. NuGet is getting more friendly for that as well. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. really cool to see the crossover between these ecosystems and their cultures. They're more similar than they're different, I think. They are. Yeah, now it's 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 a great state to be in that we're sort of evolving towards a, com- a common goals in some respect. More importantly, it's like where it's a good idea doesn't matter what platform it's on, what language it's on. Right, if it's a good idea, we should do it. And with TypeScript, we kind of have more of C Sharp's strong typing coming into the JavaScript ecosystem. Node mm-hmm. is really good at having an ecosystem of testing, and I really hope that comes to .NET. So, what's the strategy for testing Node and why do we do such a bad job of it in .NET? (laughs) I think it's challenging to write good testable code in .NET still to this day. It is and it isn't. Um, With a test, I need to understand the dependencies that I have. Maybe I need to change them for the purpose of the test. And then I need to be able to call into my function and assert the results. If Mm -hmm. I can create a stateless service, either because I've um, used all the dependencies I need in the middle of the function and let them go, or because I've injected those dependencies into my service and I can mock them out in a test, then I've created a really elegant piece of software to test. But yeah, it is a little bit more. Um, Jeremy Bites has a great talk on testing where he quotes uh, Barry Stahl saying, what portion of the user code is not important? And let's right. not test that. <laughs> right. The hard part there is that, yeah, tests are a little bit weird. You know, we have to think about our code a little bit differently. We have to think about how to make it testable. Why is Node better in this respect? Well, in .NET, we lean on the compiler because the compiler mm-hmm. is a really good first step. If the compiler says all the things are good, that's a good first unit test. And so... Oftentimes, we may stop there. I just need to deliver this feature. Let me just new the thing up in the middle of my function and do the work. In Node, we generally haven't had a compiler. Now, we have Babel and Webpack. We have TypeScript. And so, we're kind of moving in that direction. But to validate that my function works the way I expect, I need to call something to validate that it does that. Add to that that dependencies aren't really strongly typed. They're, you know just objects. So I can monkey patch in a thing. I can just override a particular variable. I can set my dependency to be exactly the way I want it. Mm. And then I can run my test and then put it back. So to some degree, it's easier to test inside Node. And it's more important because I don't have that compile step. Yeah, that makes total sense, right? And this is also, I think, in general, the nature of dynamic languages is you need more tests because you can't. it's easier to have unintended behaviors. But it's also easy to build tests because that flexibility in typing means it's not that hard to mock and create, uh, you know, a sense of execute a block of execution independent of the rest of the application. Much tougher to do in the static lands. It is much tougher. But once you think in that mechanism where tests are one of the users of your app, then you can start mm-hmm. to design for testability. Dependency injection has made that a lot easier as well. Now that dependency injection is kind of built into .NET. It's easy yeah. for me to separate my dependencies, create interfaces around them, and then mock them out in the tests that I need to. But you do need to think that way. But it also means 
Yeah, you, you're exactly right. You do need to think in terms of that testability or more importantly, that, that separation of concerns. So you can have a an injection point and take advantage of the code. Rob, what do you think of snapshot tests? Snapshot tests are interesting because if I can't find a way to test it in a really elegant way, I can just grab a snapshot. The snapshot says, this is what I got last time. Mm -hmm. And so when I run the test, I compare what I got last time to what I got this time. And if they're the same, then my test passes. Right. That's interesting. But at the same time, is what I got last time a good answer either? <laughs> right. And it's really often for us as we create snapshot tests to just assume that, oh, well, I changed the code. Therefore, the snapshot does need to be different as well. So, I'll just approve that this snapshot changed. So, I generally find snapshot tests give me a false sense of security. It's great to mm. do holistic things, but it's fragile. Using them means you have to analyze the what comes back and you have to look at it on a field by field basis and say, Oh yeah. Okay. That changed because this user, you know, like a date or something because this user last logged in this date. And I don't care about that. And most of the data that I wanted is here and it's, or all of the data that I wanted is here. Okay. I'll approve that. But it does require that extra step of, of validating the the response, which yeah. you can, which do is a step that we generally don't want to do with snapshot tests. So, we build a bunch of tests and then the snapshot changes and we just auto approve them anyway. And is that test now buying you anything? Is it easier than mocking though? I mean, you could mock and you could spend days and weeks building mocks or you could do a you snapshot could. and spend a few minutes looking at the results. And if you're careful in the results that you harvest out of that snapshot, you can probably exclude the things that will change as part of that um, yeah. database call yeah. or the updates. And at that point, then your snapshot won't change. And right. that's a much more durable test. Yep. Mm -hmm. But I do think part of being successful snapshot testing is, is having that. I've made changes. I know now I expect this test to fail, but now I have to evaluate, you know, it's always that compare. Did it change the way I expected or not? Because just accepting the new snapshot means if there is a problem, you just hid yourself from yeah. it and it's going to bite the, the user instead. Right. We got a deep dive with Simon Crop on his Verify project. Mm -hmm. And uh, that does really, it's it very flexible in terms of what defining what will change and what you can ignore and uh, has all sorts of great runners and things, just access to runners, you know. Yeah, I'll include a link to the show on the, on the show notes too, too, because I I really appreciate that I, conversation. I really enjoyed that conversation. It just changed the way but I think I, about I testing. Do think, yeah, especially living in in Node land, right? Where yeah, TypeScript's going to help us up front. Do you see a lot of like server side Node written with TypeScript, Rob? I see a decent amount, not a huge amount. But if you're going to do TypeScript mm -hmm. client side, you may as well do TypeScript server side as well. Right. And you built up the TS config anyway, you may as well just include it. I really enjoy doing TypeScript server side in Node. I think it works out really, really well. Yeah, and, it, and effectively, it's a set of tests that you're, you're able to, you're basically working on at development time, which is great. Right. It'll just, it'll, any, anytime that you can intercept the problem early, it's going to save you some pain. Yeah. Now, you it's do have different concerns code. server side and client side. Client side, mm -hmm. you're building up a suite of web components and nesting them in interesting ways. Server side, you're validating security and accomplishing database updates. So, they are mm -hmm. different code bases from a behavioral standpoint. 
but having them in one common language can be really helpful. Well, and that's the that was the whole thing with Node. It's like, hey, I'm already making web pages, JavaScript from the client. Can't I take this same skill and run it on the back end? And the answer clearly is yes. Right. It's just a question of what what good server side code looks like versus good client side code. Yeah. yeah. And the interesting thing there is when Node came along, that was really the only solution to that goal. Because we we've had this, can I use one language server side and client side for a long time? And we kept mm-hmm. trying to push our server languages into the browser. Java applets, yeah. VB script, <laughs> Flash, Silverlight. Mm-hmm. And Ugh. we kept coming up empty because browsers really needed to jump through hoops to do that. And at the end of the day, we created black boxes that search engines couldn't read into and that we couldn't right. deep link into. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of Node there was taking that problem the other direction. Can I take the JavaScript that I run in the browser and run that on the server? The beauty mm-hmm. there is that the only thing that Node added was file system access and socket access. Right. Everything else is libraries built on top of it or just the way JavaScript works. Yeah, just JavaScript libraries. When you, and you've just sort of stepped around Blazor and I just don't imagine Carl's going to let that go because clearly we can run C Sharp on the client side now. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, we like, we like WebAssembly. Since Node, WebAssembly has become a really great standard where I can now start to compile any language into a thing that will run in the same sandbox. And so now Blazor has come on and it's a really good methodology for taking web components, but running them in C Sharp instead of in JavaScript. There is a little bit of JavaScript to get the WebAssembly piece started. But yeah, now I have a whole lot more options. And there's a lot of languages that are now compiling into WebAssembly. I've seen interesting things where WebAssembly running in Kubernetes has started to become a thing. So just uh, I'd like to give a five-minute explanation of what WebAssembly is and is it safe and all that stuff. So JavaScript runs in a black box. So WebAssembly runs in the browser in a in a box. And the only access that it has to the DOM of the browser is via JavaScript. So at the end of the day, hmm. JavaScript is doing everything anyway, but WebAssembly calls out to JavaScript to access the DOM. So in a sense, it's even more locked down than JavaScript is. And so if you, right. c- if you can't do it in JavaScript in a browser, you can't do it in WebAssembly either. Right. You can't read the file system. You can't make network requests. You can't do anything different than what JavaScript was already able to do. So all of the JavaScript cross request origin things that we have are still the same things that we have in WebAssembly. Mm. And so in that sense, you should like just understand this is your language, but it's not your framework. Right. So the fact that there's an implementation of COBOL for WebAssembly, <laughs> I don't know how much there really is, are man. I just looked it up. There's a get, yeah, and it's considered a complete ready for production implementation of Cobol in WebAssembly. (laughs) I will include a link to the GitHub library. It's part of Cloudflare. 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 Like, this is legit, man. I was, we were just talking about Cloudflare with Cobol in the browser. Yeah. And there's where you get back to, right? I mean, what was Cobol is really a batch running piece of mm. software, right? It picks up files, it parses them, it puts them, it does, maybe does some math on them and puts them elsewhere. What is that? How does that make sense on the client side? But it exists. So at the yeah. dev uh, intersection, Richard, did you get a chance to talk to the guys from Fujitsu? I did, yeah. Yeah, I said, Fujitsu, 
COBOL, right? And they go, like, oh, well, you know, in another space and time. I guess they don't, yeah, they don't do that now. Um, no, they still support it, but it was not that team. The Fujitsu oh. team that was there, and hey, they were great sponsors, and thanks for being yeah. there. They were the image recognition guys, scanning paper and doing yeah, that's language right. And they had a scanner like that. that they were showing off. Amazing yeah. scanner. It was. I took I took that thing out for a spin, like tempting. But when we talk about real web assembly languages, besides C sharp, I think like uh, Rust and um, and Go. Like those are robust languages that are that are good in the client side and make and have a lot of, of power. Dif- difference for, uh, between yeah. Rust and Go and C Sharp currently, as of June 2021, the only thing that is compi- – WebAssembly is like an operating system to itself. So, you can compile for x86, you can compile for Android, mm-hmm. or you can compile for WebAssembly, let's say. And WebAssembly is a binary – you know, it, it understands a binary format. And so, Rust right. and Go compile directly to WASM files, which run natively in WebAssembly, but .NET right. has just the CLR that is implemented right. as a binary WASM. And then everything else, it just, like, we, we know what the CLR does. It loads .NET assemblies, which are not compiled. That's not, that's not how it works. Yeah, yeah, that's not how it works. And even more... So that in WebAssembly with C Sharp, that code is interpreted. Do you remember when interpreted code was a pejorative because it ran so much slower compared to binary code? Because (laughs) the machines of the day were like, (laughs) we don't have those problems now. Nobody even notices that it's interpreted. Yeah, all of Node is interpreted. Now there's JIT compilation just in time, but... For the most part, yeah, it's reading through the file and it's doing each of those tasks. Yeah. We're just, things are fast enough now. Right. We, it's like, it, for the most part, our CPUs are laying around playing poker and smoking cigarettes. You might as well give them something to do, right? <laughs> They're <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're napping most of the yeah, time. Mostly in wait. And so, the problems that we're solving are not about speed. They're about isolation. Right. And so, WASM is a good way to isolate things inside that sandbox. Um, JavaScript has its managed runtime that it isolates things, dare I say, VM, <laughs> JVM, that uh, yeah. accomplishes things. And the CLR is a similar isolation mechanism so that we don't get things cross, uh, we don't get signals crossed. Containers solve that problem as well. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, WASM just reminds us that that the execution space inside the browser is a kind of container. And you can just insert code in that from any source you want, more or less. A limited kind of container. Yeah, that's what's so interesting is compiling to WASM and running inside of Kubernetes. Kubernetes becomes then the runtime and it just happens to run WASM things instead of running process things. Yeah. It's really intriguing. Interesting. Yeah, it's very it's a very interesting thought around running code in a container is to run it through WASM first. Right. Interesting stuff, man. Cool stuff. That's good. Uh, my mind's a little twisted because you also do the, the container workshop, uh, Rob. So I'm very aware you think broadly about containers. My mind's really twisting up on WASM and I'm, containers. I'm That's, just, uh, I'm just pondering the possibilities. I, I was about to say the same thing, Richard. Like we have covered a lot of different topics here and Rob seems equally comfortable with all of them. So it's a testament to mm-hmm. your sort of, um, uh, you know, being a generalist is kind of hard these days, but it, it's a testament to your l- deep understanding of these platforms and these tools, technologies, Thanks. languages. So, 
It's good. Yeah, I try to go broad, but I also go deep in those things that are interesting or relevant or important. So it's fun. I've I've gotten to do a lot of things. Digging deep into the Node ecosystem all actually made my C sharp better as well. Sure. Um, that's originally why I got into Node was I wanted to get better at browser JavaScript things. But the deeper I got into Node, the more I was like, hey, this callback kind of looks like a Lambda. What if I built a Lambda here and passed in things? I have this data access class in C Sharp where I can pass in my uh, function that takes in a data reader and returns an object. And all of that mayhem about opening the connection and retrying and looping through the results, all of that can be in this function. And I just pass in that Lambda to accomplish stuff. Yeah. I got that nice. methodology from Node. That's cool. Yeah, it's, it literally, this is what happens when we polygot program and program these different platforms is we get these concepts and bring them back to the various ecosystems that we're working in. So, Rob, right. what are you working on now? What's in your inbox? I'm trying to learn Python. I'm going real slow at it, but it would be really fun. You know, speaking of the polygot prog programmer, it'd be fun yeah. to understand Python. Python feels like the gateway drug into machine learning as well. And so, in yes. time, can I pick up machine learning too? That could be really fun. That's cool. Uh, I picked up Python for data parsing, for reading in files and stuff. It, and you, and the problem is you have all these old ways of thinking about that, and they're wrong. They're all wrong. That, yeah. and you haven't been angry enough about white space yet, <laughs> but you will be. We, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in all of my C Sharp and JavaScript content, every line ends in a semicolon. So, half yeah. of my Python programs fail to run because I have semicolons at the end of the lines. <laughs> I remember talking to Chris yes. Sells way, way, way back. And he was talking about VBNet and he said he had to do some demos. And he always did like a, um, you know, in C Sharp, we have the hash mark for or the slash for doing comments, multiple slashes. We have the star in VB. So, he would like do star uh, semicolon at the end of every line. Just yeah, now I feel now better. I feel better. <laughs> He'd rather learn I a new it. character than not do anything at all. <laughs> do an old character. <laughs> well, hey, it took me two years to put in a semicolon. I'm not taking it back right. out. But as I've gotten better at Python, I've also gotten better at YAML, which is really interesting because yeah. YAML is very white space significant as well. Hey, Speaking YAML. of white space, yes. <laughs> all right. Well, it, we've had a lot of fun with you, Rob, and, and learned a lot too. So thanks for being here and. Thanks for uh, talking to the peeps today. Most definitely. It's been a lot of fun being on. Thanks for having me. You bet. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a
by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a dog.